Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Three times before, I've had today's Spirit in Action guest with me, each time on some facet of the impressive and world-changing activism he's been involved in all of his adult life. Steve Chase has his Ph.D. in Environmental Studies from Antioch University, and he taught there for around 15 years after first working as an editor and writer for the More Than Money Journal. He was Director of Education at the Pendle Hill Quaker Retreat Center for two years, worked at the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict for four years, and is now Assistant Director of Solidarity 2020 and Beyond. He's written several books, and today we'll be talking with him about his latest, How Agent Provocateurs Harm Our Movements, and we'll discuss what we can do about it as Steve Chase joins us from Washington, D.C., Steve, it's great to have you back for Spirit in Action, fourth time. Yeah, thank you. It's really great to be with you. I find your interviews really challenging and invigorating. I do think you get a gold star or something when you come back for the fourth time now. So just look (laughs) for that in the mail. Actually, I want to give you kudos up front. You had a big part to play in the growth of Northern Spirit radio programs. When I saw you at the Friends General Conference gathering low these many years, I don't know what it was, maybe 2007 or something, you said I should get it so that my programs were uploaded to the Pacifica network because you could do anything you wanted on the five hours of programming I think you were doing back then at the college nearby. Yeah, it was Keene State College radio station. Yeah, so because of that, I did get it up on Pacifica, which made it available to a lot of different community radio stations who do such amazing work. They're such an important part and under-acknowledged part of getting out good media, both music and news. I usually recognize, call this out about halfway through my Spirit in Action program. I'm doing it up front. Pacifica, the great resource it is, community radio stations, the incredible local focus and multiplicity of different talents and insights and important issues being addressed. So I I want to recognize that. And again, I want to recognize you, Steve, for giving me the extra nudge I needed to reach out and get this program out. Now my program's are on some 42 stations nationwide. It's so great. You had a very big part to do with that. I also want to thank specifically WHYS LP Radio here in Eau Claire, which is where I started up. And if not for the invitation, actually kind of insistence from them, this would never have happened. So Steve, you played a real important part in that. And you played a really important part in spreading the understanding, effectiveness of nonviolence. So your latest book is How Agent Provocateurs Harm Our Movements and What Can Be Done About It. It was published by ICNC, that's International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, published by them after you've already moved to your new position. Isn't that a sweet parting gift? Yeah, it was great because I worked a lot on this whole concept of agent provocateurs when I was the manager of academic initiatives at the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. The manuscript hadn't been completed by the time I had shifted 
but we kept working on it. And what's exciting to me about the book being out, because it's geared towards activists and organizers to think through how to deal with a very serious problem that comes up throughout history and currently, and in many different countries. It was great because ICNC puts it out for free as a free download from their website, but you also can order print copies from their webpage and they now have it available as an ebook as well. And I understand just about a week ago, you did a webinar on that. Could you tell me how that went? What happened? I did do a webinar on it, and it's tricky to turn a book into a webinar, but it seemed to go really well. The questions were excellent and interesting. The webinar is also published now. It's uploaded on both the ICNC website as well as Solidarity 2020 and Beyond's website. And that's the organization that I currently work for. Solidarity 2020 and Beyond is an international solidarity network and a community of practice of grassroots activists in about 70 different countries in the global south and an organizing committee and a small staff that helps support, amplify the voices amplify the less strategic lessons of people using people power. And that includes nonviolent civil resistance, various kinds of institutional advocacy and peace building skills that people are using all over the world to try to deal with some really tough challenges and promote democracy and justice and sustainability. But for people who don't know, agent provocateurs are fake activists who are working undercover for movement opponents. Then they behave in ways that disrupt the movement. The research in the last 10 years has made it really clear that four elements of success for movements is that you have large numbers but also wide participation across many different sectors of a society to achieve real goals when normal institutional channels aren't enough. You need a strategic capacity where people are thinking strategically rather than just being reactive or just throwing the same tactic over and over and over again. Another thing that you need is a certain amount of workable unity. You know, there's always differences in a movement, slightly different variations in visions or analysis, and certainly in strategy. But the more working unity there is, and and even if people are doing somewhat different things, if it's complementary rather than antagonistic, that increases the chances of social movements succeeding. And then the fourth one is the level of nonviolent discipline about even when there's repression, can people sort of stay the course with, you know, courageous persistence? Because it is found that when some elements of a movement start engaging in violence, it tends to make the social movement weaker and smaller and easier to defeat which is why agent provocateurs, historically, one of their common practices is to pretend to be activists and then both engage in violence or try to instigate violence 
because the power holders understand that that allows you to demonize activists in a democratic social movement as thugs, as hooligans, as people who are creating disorder. And that increases their room in terms of public opinion to come down with very harsh repression. Movements that maintain nonviolent discipline, they certainly face repression because any kind of effective resistance is going to hit repression. But historically, it's much less than when people try to engage in armed struggle or even sort of unarmed mayhem doesn't really help build a movement's effectiveness. And so agent provocateurs historically have been a big problem for democratic social movements who are using civil resistance versus political violence as their tool to move things forward. It occurred to me when I was reading the book, and again, folks, How Agent Provocateurs Harm Our Movements, What Could Be Done About It by Steve Chase, Dr. Steve Chase, I should get that right too. <laughs> when I was reading it, it occurred to me that there was an assumption that seemed to be pervasive widespread that nonviolent actions were more effective. And I somehow believe that that's a belief of the past century or so. Gandhi certainly brought it to a lot of people's minds. And it's not that there wasn't any nonviolent action before, but to preach to people, hey, we should all stay nonviolent or civil resistance, as it's sometimes called. We should all do it that way because that's going to be most effective. I don't know when that idea originated. Well, it's kind of hard to say, but people have been using tactics of non-cooperation, protest, persuasion, disruption, civil disobedience has been used for centuries. Think of the labor movement. One of the earliest times that I saw this dynamic of power holders understanding that if they can make movements against them, engage in violence, that they'll be often easier to defeat was back in Tsarist Russia. There's this uh, great story I found where a labor organizer who had organized some general strikes was imprisoned and the police captain that was interrogating him sort of slipped and said, you know, we're going to pressure you until your movement moves into terrorism and then we will crush you. And so power holders have known and feared for a long, long time and, you know, an organized, powerful citizenry that will withdraw its support and its cooperation and then undermine the power because power isn't a magical thing. It relies on sources of cooperation or acquiescence from the wider society. And when that's strategically removed, that power erodes. And so this has been powerful. There's even a a great story in the Hebrew scriptures about this king who was lavishly throwing a party for the nobles and sort of the rich and powerful of his society. And so this is thousands of years ago, a couple thousand years ago. And he brings one of his wives in and he commands her to dance for the entertainment of these other nobles and rich folk. 
And she just finds that humiliating and she refuses. And so if you're reading in the Bible, it talks about how he immediately threw her into prison. And, you know, in this scripture, it says, what if all women (laughs) started refusing the commands of the powerful and the men in their life? And it's musing about, oh, this would be so disastrous. We have to shut this woman down now because she could be a pattern and an example for other women. And so these power dynamics, I mean, power holders are very aware of this. Oppressive power elites realize where they're vulnerable, sometimes more accurately than a lot of activists. And I think we have to keep that in mind. And that's the motivation, both to use repression to spark and trigger social movements, you know, at least at the margins, to sort of fight back, which is emotionally understandable when you're getting hit. But also, I think it's really important to learn that oppressive power holders routinely use agent provocateurs as a way to move our movements into unstrategic courses of action that will decrease their chances of success. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from agent provocateurs because they are using counterproductive behavior. And so when people are arguing, sincere activists are arguing for using the same sort of tactics that agent provocateurs are using, we need to critically go, does that make sense? Are we playing into the hands? Do we want to be agent provocateurs for free and harm our movements? And my answer is absolutely not. One of the phrases you say in the book, Steve, is that while actions, reactions to what the government's doing may be justifiable, that doesn't mean that they're strategic. And people sometimes, well, I have a right to protect myself. Well, of course you have a right, but is it the wise thing to do? Is it going to get you where you want to go? And people don't take that extra step too often. Yes, but I think we have to take responsibility for trying to maximize the chances of success for movements, because without democratic social movements and an engaged citizenry, freedom erodes, justice erodes, peace falls apart. I just see it as an essential, you know, for Martin Luther King's vision of a beloved community, which is close to my heart is I see no other way than to figure out how to have an engaged but strategic citizenry. By the way, going way back, you you were referring to stuff in the Hebrew scriptures. There's a Greek play, I don't know, it's three years, 500 BCE, Lysistrata. Right. Talk about nonviolent resistance. And for people who haven't kept up on their ancient Greek, Lysistrata is a story where the women of Sparta and Athens are fed up with their men being way at war all the time, want to get them to stop, so they have a sex strike. Exactly. And Jean Sharp, who is one of the real pioneers of academics looking at social movements and how they use nonviolent action for civil resistance, which is the term that Gandhi coined about 100 years ago, 
He listed in his groundbreaking book, The Politics of Nonviolent Action, 198 different methods of nonviolent action. And he lists um, Lysistrata, but that there have been other examples in more recent history where women have done similar things as a way to push the men in their society to deal with conflicts in a more peaceful way. But the basic idea is that hierarchical power cannot exist without the cooperation and acquiescence of the wider society. And so you remove those supports strategically through a movement and you increase your chances of achieving really useful goals. And people should be aware, all the listeners of Spirit in Action maybe have thought about this, of the difference between a movement and an action. A lot of people confound the two, think, okay, we've had the demonstration, we've done our work. But when that's part of the big picture of a movement, that's when it becomes effective. Yeah, a movement you know, has tangible goals. They have long-range visions, but they also have short-term goals. And it's persistent and it's over time and it doesn't just, it's not one demonstration. It's like, okay, you figure out who the decision makers are, you target them, you do an analysis of power and where you can sort of both protest and persuade, which is important, but where it gets really powerful is through non-cooperation. You know, strikes and boycotts have been incredibly powerful, but there's other forms of non-cooperation. And when we're talking about agent provocateurs, I want to make clear for our listeners, we're not just talking about any kind of infiltration or spying by the forces against movements. Uh, Certainly, a person can be embedded in a movement to listen to, let the government know what actions are coming. That is not necessarily an agent provocateur. Yes. What is an agent provocateur specifically? There are fake activists who play different roles, put in, infiltrated by movement opponents. And one of them is what you're talking about, which is the informer, which provides intelligence to, say, a government security service or or something like that. That can be damaging to movements. But it's a different role than agent provocateurs, which is not gathering intelligence. It's behaving in ways that will put a bad light on a movement. So typically, agent provocateurs will do things like create conflicts within a movement or break coalitions or demonize other activists, make it so unpleasant that people don't want to be in the organization. So there's ways you can harm it that way. And that helps make it smaller. Agent provocateurs historically have created scandals, you know, do embezzling and things. You know, the key thing that I focus on is how agent provocateurs promote or instigate violence. I start out the book with a story about a young student journalist interviewing Noam Chomsky about his experience with agent provocateurs um, in the U.S. peace movement against the um, U.S. invasion and occupation of Vietnam. And he describes many different things, and it's a good story. Then I go into snapshots of agent provocateurs in the last century or so in, I think, about 10 different countries. 
And then I go into a deep dive into the U.S. Black freedom movement of the 50s and 60s and how agent provocateurs, particularly through the FBI's COINTEL program, were used to damage the nonviolent movements associated with Martin Luther King and how they can, the FBI, the upper levels of the U.S. FBI said that King was the most threatening leader in the United States, a security risk for the established order of corporate capitalism, militarism, and racism, white supremacy, and that they had to stop him essentially by whatever means necessary. And they used informers, also did psychological operations to get King to commit suicide, It's a horrible history, but in the early 1963 or so, all the agents that were embedded within various movement organizations were told to start moving into being not just informers, but agent provocateurs. And it was very damaging to the movement. And then at the end of the book, I'm also looking at, you know, how do we inoculate ourselves from this virus? of agent provocateurs and sort of build up immunity within a movement. And the argument I make there is that one of the ways is that many sincere, but I think strategically misguided activists sort of take the bait of agent provocateurs or, you know, in the repression are emotionally triggered and want to fight back, which you can completely understand. Malcolm X in 1964 gave a talk called Ballots or Bullets, and he made the case that it's not sufficient when the system is rigged, you know, the supposed democratic system is rigged in a way that you're not going to have true democracy. And when you have millions of Black folks who can't vote, and when human rights activists are being attacked, thrown in jail, beaten with clubs, tear gassed, attacked by dogs, when churches are being blown up and little girls are being killed because people are trying to get the right to vote, that's not a democratic system. So you need a stronger form of popular resistance than normal channels. That was very wise. But in this talk, he starts arguing that the only possible option is armed struggles. So he talks about we need more Molotov cocktails, we need bullets, we need grenades, we need urban guerrilla warfare. And it's totally understandable, given the intense violence that was being rained down on Black folks during this period, and, you know, to some degree today, that people would have this response. But the question still has to be, what's the most effective? And even Malcolm X wasn't thinking that strategically. I think his analysis towards the end of his life was amazing. His vision was very strong of a multiracial democracy that really is embedded in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But his strategic thinking, since he didn't know much about civil resistance, hadn't studied it, its theory of power, its history, its strategy, its tactics, that limited his, I think, his strategic wisdom. But even in that talk, he admits that he wasn't responding strategically. He talks about how when that violence rains down on me, 
I go insane and I'm not responsible for my action. Totally understandable emotionally. And given what we know about agent provocateurs, very counterproductive. And so I think we have to develop and increase our capacity to withstand that kind of trauma and still be courageously persistent in ways that are more likely to win. And I think Martin Luther King, who agreed with Malcolm X on many, many things about analysis and vision towards the end of both of their lives, but he had a strong disagreement because he wanted to focus on civil resistance. And I think research and history suggests that King had more insights strategically than Malcolm did for all of what we can learn from Malcolm. And again, you just said, you know, it's understandable. It's the, there's, you can justify your violence, but, or you can understand that you'd want to use violence, but strategically, you may be cutting off your nose to spite your face if you do that. And we do want people to achieve their peace and justice issues. We want equality, equity. We want fairness. We want democracy. Yeah. And, you know, I think just the basic question I have is, what can we learn from agent provocateurs? That we can learn that those are the things that oppressive power elites believe will make our movements smaller, weaker, and easier to defeat. So we shouldn't imitate that behavior. We should creatively think about behaviors that have, you know, a sort of a documented history of winning. Folks, we are speaking with Steve Chase. He's author of How Agent Provocateurs Harm Our Movements and What Can Be Done About It. He started writing that when he was with the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, also known as ICNC, links on NordenSpiritRadio.org, and currently he's Assistant Director with Solidarity 2020 and Beyond. And their website is all those words, solidarity2020andbeyond.org. We'll have that link, so it'll be easy to get there if you come to nordenspiritradio.org. I think that it would really help our listeners if they understood a little bit more in the big picture. You've just talked about during the civil rights movement and the whole black liberation movement in the U.S., Sometimes we get kind of blinded to the widespread use of agent provocateurs, lessons that we, if we could learn from, right? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you talk about Guatemala as an example of one place where it's done. You want to share anything about that? Sure. It was in the 1940s, I think around 1944, there was a dictator who said things frequently like, I'm like Hitler. I kill people and then give them trials. Very autocratic. And there was this, a movement slowly grew. First lawyers started organizing to get a judge put back on the bench that had been kicked out. Then some teachers at the university demanded more pay. And then students started organizing for more academic freedom under this dictatorship. And then sort of martial law was declared by the government for the campus. Then the students and the faculty and then this group of lawyers started reaching out to the broader working class of Guatemala, and they started organizing more movements. There was a march, a big march in front of the presidential palace, and other marches were happening. 
and agent provocateurs were put in, but they weren't that skillful, but they tried to create mayhem, sort of vandalism, violence, pretended to fight with the police and things. And that justified, that allowed the police to go very repressive against the whole movement, including people who were engaging in nonviolent action, which was the vast majority. Luckily, that was sort of found out And it didn't have the same effect of people sympathizing with the government at that point. They still sympathized with the movement. One of the interesting things is at that point, the movement could have done another like mass protest in front of the palace. But instead, their concern was if they did that, what if more skillful agent provocateurs mixed in the crowd and created problems for the movement. And so they did a general strike and people just stayed home because it's much harder for agent provocateurs when there's not a big crowd. Then there's times and places it's certainly strategic to have people come together in, in big masses. But there's other times where you may want to disperse the action and refuse cooperation by not opening up shops, by not opening up factories, by staying at home. And so they were able, within a matter of months, to overthrow this dictator. And there was sort of a 10-year period, which is called sort of the springtime of democracy in Guatemala. And then, you know, other things happen because the struggle for freedom is ongoing and things can erode over time. But that was, I think, a good example of a movement experiencing agent provocateurs as one form of repression and coming up with ways to expose the agent provocateurs as much as possible, and then choose strategies that would diminish their ability to work within the movement. There's a lot of wisdom in a very short book. And when I say short, it's a, it's a quick read. You're not going to have to spend all week reading this book. Yeah, I designed it as 50 pages, and it's geared towards activists and organizers. It's you know, I, I some academics I know are finding it interesting, but it's it's storytelling and just thinking about strategy to be of use to activists and organizers who care about working for peace or social justice, pro-democracy, sustainability. Well, here at Spirit in Action, part of Northern Spirit Radio, we're all about getting the information out to you to help make this a better world, do world healing work. We'll have links to a download of the book. You can get it for free from the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, ICNC. We'll have a link to their website so you can download it. And we'll also have a link to solidarity2020andbeyond.org, that website where Steve Chase is currently working. Again, the book is How Agent Provocateurs Harm Our Movements, What Can Be Done About It. Northern Spirit Radio, we've got links to all of our guests from the last 16 and a half years. So you can track them down. So you can listen also to Steve Chase when I talk to him about the program at Antioch College, which trained people to be activists. And it's ongoing. It's still going within the Environmental Studies Department at Antioch University, New England. It's focused on training public interest advocates and grassroots organizers. And it's called the Advocacy for Social Justice and Sustainability Program. 
So listen to that interview on our NordenSpiritRadio.org website, interview that I did with Steve Chase and Ruth Wonderfold about Transition Town Movement, which is real important. Steve also wrote a book about his conversion from Zionist to a more... Well, human rights for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) From Zionist to human rights for everybody. Yes, and that is also on our site. And of course, it's the fourth time we're having them here. On our website, you'll find a place to comment. Please do post your comments on our interviews. We love making our communication two-way. I want to learn. That's why I have Steve and other folks here, is because I don't assume I know all. And I do know that there's some really dedicated hard workers for peace, social justice, environmentalism. And that's what we try and have here on Spirit in Action. Also on our site, there's a place to support us. Under support, you click on Donate. And you can make your donation directly to us. You can mail us a check or contribute via our Facebook page or whatever. In many ways, you can support us. But again, I want to repeat, the community radio stations, the part of the Pacifica Network and other places where they're doing the good job of media. We just spoke about media with Steve. The important voice that local people have to have about the truth of what's going on. Please support those community radio stations and Pacifica in general. Support it all, but don't forget Northern Spirit Radio on your Christmas list. (laughs) Let's get back to talking some more about Steve. One of the questions that many people will have is, how do we know they're actually agent provocateurs? Because there's certainly a vested interest on the part of civil resistance movements of any kind of activists to portray the other side as doing the bad stuff. So someone in a demonstration throws a brick and gets some violence going. It's certainly to the interest of most of, I think, uh, the protesters to say, that wasn't us, that was an agent provocateur. You cite some really important historical evidence we have of how agent provocateurs have worked. Could you share a little bit of that? Just so we're not just making this up. There's really solid documentation. Yeah, there's very solid documentation. There was a sociologist in 1974. He wrote an article, a guy named Gary Marks, and he was talking about that social movement researchers hadn't put enough attention to a certain kind of social movement participant. And it was the informer and the agent provocateur and sort of opened it up among U.S. academics who were thinking about social movements. And he did great documentation of that. It's hard because agent provocateurs are undercover. It's often secret. But one of the ways that things have been exposed is in England, there was a guy who went by the name Mark Stone. Why are they picking on the name Mark? It's not good. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But there it is. But he worked for several years and was paid quite a bit to infiltrate various peace groups and environmental groups. And then he urged them to engage in violence. And he often came up with ideas and had funding and then would get unsuspecting, somewhat gullible activists involved with him. But he was exposed through a court trial. At that point, the Guardian newspapers started working with activists within the United Kingdom, the European Union, and they documented over a thousand cases of agent provocateurs or likely provocateurs. 
Now, that said, one of the things that my book isn't trying to do is blame every unstrategic, violent action that appears to be a movement. I don't blame everything on agent provocateurs because there are some sincere but misguided activists that engage in those things or are emotionally triggered by repression to do this. And so part of my argument is that's what makes us more susceptible to the activities of agent provocateurs. So at the end of the book, when I'm talking about ways movements can minimize the damage, part of it is having people understand strategy and the historical dynamics that researchers have said. The fact that over the 20th century, nonviolent civil resistance has been twice as effective as armed struggle ought to mean something. We ought to learn something from that really strong research. The fact that oppressive power elites traditionally routinely use throughout history and in many different societies, agent provocateurs, should tell us something about what kind of actions make the most sense and what strategic purposes. So I talk about that, but there's also specific things that groups can do. Before actions, they can do pre-action training, and they can include training about agent provocateurs and about how we should avoid taking the bait. A lot of movements organize in mass action smaller groups of people, a sort of affinity groups, so people are not just animized individual in a large crowd. They have people providing a mutual support and emotional support and keeping people focused, their eyes on the prize and not taking the bait in engaging in counterproductive activities. You can do after-action debriefs about what worked, what didn't. And the whole idea here is you know, how to get people to think more and more strategically about how do we actually win? Because it's not enough just to express your displeasure. That's easy enough to do. What's hard but important is organizing people effectively and strategically to win real victories for peace and justice and sustainability and democracy. So there are ways that you can increase the immunization, but part of it is getting activists to agree to engage in strategic intermovement discussions so we have a better understanding of what would help us win. And one example I had is, After Charlottesville, the neo-Nazi demonstration in Charlottesville, there was a sort of KKK, neo-Nazi, white supremacist demonstration that was organized to be in Lafayette Park in front of the White House when Trump was president. A number of groups in D.C. where I live were getting together and trying to plan, should we do a counter-demonstration? How should it be organized? And we decided to do a counter demonstration. But there were people in the room who their argument was we should combine nonviolent tactics with violent tactics, that that would increase the strength of the thing. But other people said, well, nobody's going to bring their children to something that looks like it's just gearing up for a big fight. So you'll have a smaller crowd. 
there's probably a lot of people from various religious congregations that won't show up if that's the thing. And so we had this strategic debate. And what we decided together as a group, even though there were some people in the group who I don't know if they were Antifa or not, but they were talking about punching Nazis and things like that or fighting with the police. But we agreed to a policy of a nonviolent discipline for the demonstration because people realized if there were any violence on the part of the counter demonstration, it would reflect badly in the movement. And a couple of the people who had sort of more violent strategic approach said, well, we're going to reserve the right if we see Nazis coming out of the metro stations that we might rough them up a bit. But we agree we won't do anything like that at the demonstration. And it was very big. It dwarfed the white supremacists in Lafayette Park and it got good press coverage And it wasn't because people were pacifists. And I think it's important for people to realize that most pacifists don't engage in civil resistance. And most people who engage in civil resistance aren't pacifists. So you have a small group of pacifists often in civil resistance movement. You have a much larger group that has a moral preference for nonviolence if it can be effective. And then you have a group that's sort of whatever, violence, nonviolence, whatever works. But the point is nonviolent action strategically done with really good recruitment and building up the movement is far more effective. So that's what can combine people from these different ethical orientations. But I thought it was interesting that we could negotiate a policy, not a principle of nonviolence, but a policy of nonviolent action for this demonstration because people sincerely wanted the movement to achieve success. And people had disagreements, but they agreed for this action. And that's what's important. You know, setting up codes of conduct, having marshals who help people stick with the code of conduct and stick with the strategy. So these are many ways that we can increase our immunity from the infection of agent provocateurs. But it means working with sincere, very sincere activists who might well disagree with us strategically and try to be as persuasive as possible. The way you talk in the book, Steve, about how to deal with agent provocateurs is telling. And you point out the kind of extremes, one of which is just trying to ignore them. Maybe they'll go away. Other one is, oh, we know that's agent provocateurs. Let's take him down. Let's beat him up. And there are places where that was done. Yeah, I tell a story about Hong Kong where people discovered an agent provocateur in one of the mass demonstrations and they started beating him up because they were so mad at him. And it was a journalist who actually saved the guy and said, you know, if you're beating him up, this is just going to be used as propaganda. And it was. The Chinese Communist Party used videotape of people beating up this, what became known as a police officer, and then demonized them as hooligans And look, you know, what's happened in Hong Kong is pretty repressive. And this isn't the only factor that made that happen, but it's part of the dynamic. And so that agent provocateur, even though he was exposed and he was beat up, 
because it was caught on camera, the movement looked bad. So the agent provocateur achieved his objective, even though he was exposed. And one of the things that agent provocateurs have been documented is doing is charging other people in the movement who are innocent with being informers or agent provocateurs, because that creates distrust and division within a movement, and it makes it kind of unpleasant, and a lot of people disassociate. What I argue in the book is that unless you have really well-documented evidence and a case to expose somebody, it's better to focus on what is the counterproductive behavior, regardless of the motivation and just figure out ways that movements can protect themselves from counterproductive behavior. And I give several suggestions, because if you're immediately jumping to calling somebody an agent provocateur, you may be creating division. And sometimes movements get so into a a rigid security culture And one example I use in the book is that at one point, the Black Panthers had been so badly infiltrated and had been pushed into various kinds of offensive violence that allowed for greater and greater repression that they stopped allowing new members to join. And you can see the logic of that of, well, we can't trust who's coming in, so we just won't take new people in. But that also means your movement's not growing. So I argue in the book that the one extreme about doing nothing and not thinking about this problem isn't helpful. Getting into sort of paranoid security culture is also counterproductive. So what's the creative middle ground? And it's things like developing training, educating people about how civil resistance work, educating people about the success rates of civil resistance compared to armed struggle, and then codes of conduct and marshals and affinity groups and debriefing. All of these things are tools to focus on the behavior, even when you don't know whether the person's an agent provocateur or not, and you may not have the information, you still can say, that is not helping the movement cut it out. We're not doing that. And there's also creative ways in demonstrations, like in Serbia, when Milosevic, the dictator, was being overthrown. The youth movement, Otpor, they developed marshals at their demonstrations who had relationships with taxicab companies. And so when somebody would stand up and was likely an agent provocateur saying, you know, let's start breaking windows, let's throw a bomb, let's burn down the parliament or whatever, the marshals would surround that person, call the taxis, the taxis would come, they'd put the agent provocateur likely agent provocateur in the taxi cab, and then the taxi cabs would take them outside of town and drop them <laughs> off. You know, so that's, that's a pretty kind of dramatic but creative way. But Well, you gave another example that I really loved, and this was not with the agent provocateur explicitly, but evidently to try and encourage the demonstration towards violence, they left a vehicle loaded with weapons in the middle of it. So what do you do in that case? And the women lined up around it. Yeah. So there's one example from Syria where during the height of the nonviolent movement against the Assad regime, 
the Assad regime put out trucks and carts with weapons on it, hoping that demonstrators would pick them up and shift from civil resistance, which the regime was scared of, to armed struggle, which the regime thought, we have enough weapons, we can deal with that kind of fighting. And people did pick up the arms, and it did make the shift that the Assad regime wanted. And then you look at there's a civil war, Assad is still in power, much, much destruction. Now, in the Sudan case, the dictatorship Bashir that was overthrown, I think, in 2018, they did the same thing. They put trucks out. But the movement there was more aware. Their ability to maintain nonviolent discipline is extremely high. It's really amazing. And they were also strategic. But they had a whole bunch of older women organizers in the Sudan struggle. They found the vehicles, circled them. So like young people going to a mass demonstration wouldn't find the guns and pick them up. And so it just reduced the temptation of doing that. And I just, I thought that was a great example of thinking creatively about how to deal with power elites trying to create a violent movement in order to make it weaker and easier to defeat. And they interrupted that whole pattern and dynamic. How is it in the case of agent provocateurs in the United States, I'm specifically thinking, if someone hands you 12 sticks of dynamite so you can go blow something up or make sure you get guns and hand out guns to you, how are those agent provocateurs not responsible for their actions as accessories or entrapment or whatever? How does that work? Do they at least partially get caught by the system, the courts? Does that reverse the system? Does the media latch on to that? There are examples when that happens. A lot of this is so undercover that it doesn't get exposed. But there are a lot of journalists who have exposed that in the United States and elsewhere. I mentioned the Guardian newspaper talking about Europe and Canada and the UK. And in the U.S., it has been exposed at different times. In some places, this kind of activity is illegal. The Mark Stone case that I talked about, there were like six people arrested who were planning, I think, the idea was to do sabotage and sort of blow up a power plant. And the agent provocateur came up with the plans, came up with the financing, but he found some people who were gullible enough to believe that this was, quotes, the most radical and most effective way to get something done, even though the historical evidence would suggest quite to the contrary. But they were gullible enough. But they were able to expose him in the trial as the agent provocateur, as the organizer, and under British law, that's illegal. So the case against the activists was dropped because the evidence was found in ways that were illegal. And then the other thing that the movements there did is they put pictures of Mark Stone on posters, named him and documented him as an agent provocateur, so he couldn't go back underground in a different movement. It just made it widespread. In the United States in 1971, I talk about the book how a group of activists actually raided an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, 
and took files from it because they were so sick and tired of the repression against the anti-war movement. And what they discovered in those files was the existence of the COINTEL program, which from 1956 through 19, at least 71, when this was exposed, had used agent provocateurs and other kinds of repression against democratic social movements pushing for reform, including NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, CORE, Students for Democratic Society, Students for Nonviolent Coordinating, were all infiltrated, and it was documented. They sent that documentation, all these files, both to sympathetic members of Congress, journalists, and so there was a huge exposure. So the FBI stopped using the term COINTELPRO, But there's also been documentation that the kinds of activities that they engage in had continued through the 80s and 90s. You know, it's always easier to find out these cases more in the past, but you have to assume they're operative now and then figure out how to increase your immunity to these kind of damaging forces within your movement. There's more we could talk about. Folks, the book that Steve Chase wrote, How Agent Provocateurs Harm Our Movements and What Can Be Done About It, is a short book. Fewer words than perhaps we've shared over this hour. It can be downloaded directly. I'll have links on NordenSpiritRadio.org. It can be downloaded for free, or you can buy a physical copy as well. Steve Chase has been on our program, as I said, four times. You'll understand something of what motivates him to do this work, both organizing and teaching organizing, leading it, including his work with Solidary 2020 and Beyond.org. That link's on our site. Thanks also to the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, ICNC, who helped bring this book out and are sharing it with the world. There's a lot of good work they've been supporting, and it is where Steve Chase previously worked. He's still in Washington, D.C. Look him up. He'll help you spread good work to make this planet a better place. Steve, it's so wonderful to have you here. Time number four, again, the gold star is in the mail. Thank you so much for sharing with us today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate all your work to provide these hour-long shows for so many years with people who are really thinking in both principled and strategic ways how to build a world of justice and peace and democracy. It's Your work is just tremendous on that. Thank you. And thank you again, Steve. And folks, you'll find links to Steve Chase, his work, and a place to download a free copy of his book on northernspiritradio.org. And you'll find the full interview about 10 minutes longer than this broadcast version. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.